Hey, and welcome to On the Battlefield with me, Father Joseph Collins, and my friend, Father Michael Marcantoni, uh, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst life's suffering and upheaval. Today, we have a special guest with us, a friend of both Father Michael's and mine, a former schoolmate and teacher, uh, Mr. George Papayanis. He's up in Boston, Massachusetts. And we'll kick it over to you, George, for a brief introduction of yourself. Thank you, Father Joseph and Father Michael. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as my background, I was a, uh, an engineer, became an educator, and I've been an educator for um, better part of 20 years in a variety of roles from school leader, instructional coach, and teacher um, in public charter private schools um, to mentor and youth leader in engineering education and orthodox education. Um, it's something I love to do and, and something I, I, I love helping people connect with the thing they're trying to learn. Awesome. Uh, again, thank you so much for being with us. It's a, it's a pleasure. So we've been talking in the past uh, few episodes about life on the battlefield, the, the struggle of life, education, making disciples. And we, we wanted to have an educator come on with us and give us some best practices of how to deal with our young children, our, our, our teenagers, our young adults, and, and how to make the faith their own, how, how to live that life on the battlefield at home, knowing that it's our responsibility as parents, as godparents to, to educate these children in, in the way of the Orthodox Church. So if you could give us some, uh, some best practices, some principles that you use, uh, we'd really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just start off by saying education is hard. I mean, the, the, the practice of, of helping somebody learn something um, isn't easy. And, and a lot of people uh, put in a lot of energy trying to do it. And, and I, I applaud them. Um, I mean, if I just if I'm looking at broad strokes, sort of 30,000 foot uh, ideas, because um, again, there's a lot that goes into it. I'd say, you know, give as much exposure as you can and then find some way to create, um, uh, find some way to, to instill guidance in, in that exposure so that um, when someone has questions, there's someone that has um, solid answers to, to support them through that learning. I think one of the biggest, uh, I think one of the biggest problems uh, that I see, you know, when we're talking to young people, when we see them in the parishes, we're talking with families trying to, uh, trying to navigate handing the faith down to their kids is when it's not properly or, or adequately internalized or when they don't feel a sense of ownership for it, um, it they uh, invariably we as priests get the question put to us in some form or another of like, why am I struggling? Why am I suffering? Um, I, you know, I've got the, I, you say we've got the answers. Why is this hard? Um, ha have you seen that? Ha have you seen people sort of dealing with that gap between the expectation of, I think I got the one plus one equals two. And if that, if I have that, why am I still having problems? Do, 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 do you kind of get it? Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. I mean, almost on a daily basis when I work with, uh, with learners. I mean, you know, you, you want to learn it. If, if, I mean, assuming the topic that you're, you're studying something you want to learn, um, it might look easy to somebody who knows it, but every new thing has that, um, that learning curve to get there. And so when I think about it, so in, in a church uh, context 
you know, we, we think about, uh, and we often talk about the parents, the, the learning happens in the home and it's on the parents to teach their kids. But when I think about, okay, well, how did the parents learn when they were kids? You know, if there was a gap in their own learning, when they become parents themselves, there's not a miraculous filling in of that gap that happens. And so um, it's important to be critical about who's our audience and, and, and what do they know coming into this? Because they might not, they might not themselves have learned enough to teach their own children. So I heard you use the word learner. That I don't think is a mistake for you. You're a very thoughtful human being. Why do you choose to use that word learner rather than student? Yeah, and especially when I think about um, the labels that we use, um, there's a really um, profound title. If, when I think about the, the words that we use, right? So John Wooden was a coach. He was a very famous UCLA basketball coach. Um, he took his, his men's team to um, the, the finals, won the, the NCAA championship. I think it was 10 times in 11 years. He's, he's a legend. And, one of his players wrote a book called you haven't taught until they have learned and so the idea that often happens um, in in teaching circles is that we talk about teaching we can even show you what we've done to try to teach but then on the evaluation side on the assessment side um, it tends to be a little bit lighter on um, having any sort of evidence or documentation that the student learned and so um, i lean towards uh, learner over student usually. Um, and I also, you know, when we talk about it for younger kids, and this is an inspiration from the Reggio Emilia approach in Italy, um, they, they talk about their kids as, as children. So they talk about the children as opposed to the student. Um, and for the child, using that word makes it just sound more familial, more warm, because learning is a relationship. I mean, you could have a teacher or a coach um, uh, or any, you know, coach sports or coach music or any sort of uh, space, mentor, um, engaging with someone who's trying to learn. Um, if there's not a relationship there, if it's just a transaction, it's not just not going to be as effective. I think it would probably, if, I think it probably has got to have some sort of, uh, some sort of psychological effect on the instructor too, because if the instructor has said it in their mind that I'm relating to this person as a child, maybe even in some sense, my child, these are one of my children. That's one mindset versus these are these students, you know, these are the, the faceless people that are being instructed. I, I think it, if it makes it familial to the learner, it should make it familial to the instructor as well. That's gotta be probably a two way effect. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the things that's really core to good teaching, good instruction is um, relationship and, and building that relationship with your, uh, with your learners, with your students, with the children. Um, and that's hard. And that's one of those things that when, when you look at education school training, um, it's not usually at, at the top of the list or, or the most emphasized um, because we have to worry about our, our content. Uh, and our classroom management and these other issues um, that novice teachers especially ask about as, as the first questions of wait how do i manage the class well you manage the class based on how well you how, what kinds of relationships you have with your with your students you know how how well they trust and respect you and how you build that up with them you have children of your own george um you've had 
hundreds, if not thousands of students uh, that you've taught and learners that you've taught. Um, with regards to orthodoxy and your own children and what you've seen working, how you're taking that approach at home, what, what, what techniques are you using? What sorts of best practices can we give to those people listening to us right now to, to start making learners of our children and start engaging in the learning process ourselves as educators? Because like you said already, a lot of our parents are not the best educated in the faith, which is not entirely their fault, but today's a great day to begin. Today is the day of salvation, right? The church always talks in the context of right now, today. So how can, how can, we, how can we do that today moving forward? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of what you can do is set up the environment. And so we have two little ones, a, a three-year-old and a four-month-old. And, and what we've done with both of them is, is started off with music. So the sounds of the environment, um, images in the environment. So we have um, icons throughout the house. Uh, when we um, watch liturgy, for example, uh, on YouTube, we, we set up icons in front of the television. So we have um, in, in the space, we, we create this environment because the, the, the environment is a teacher too. So there's this philosophy um, also out of Reggio Emilia on um, the third teacher. So the teacher, the adult that we tend to think of is the first teacher. Um, the children teach each other, they're the second teacher, and then the space teaches as well. So immediately, if, if you have the opportunity to, to create that, um, the sights and the sounds of orthodoxy, uh, bring them into the home, that's one thing you can immediately do. And, and in addition to like um, listening to chanting of, of the monks of Simon Nopetra or, or Divna, uh, are two that we've we found the kids like, um, but also then reading to the children. So um, we were big fans of Potamitis Press and the books that they have for children and reading about um, the saints, and especially, you know, they do a really good job with contemporary saints. Um, you know, St. Paisios, uh, the Athenites, St. Um, Yakovos, uh, Talikis, and, and others, so that we can expose the kids to the people of the faith, because we're not just, orthodoxy is not just an idea, it's a thing that, that people have lived um, and experienced and, and died for, and, and there's just all this lived experience over the last several thousand years, uh, and we can share that. I wanted to point out, because we did not plan this, but um, so a couple episodes back when we were talking about discipleship, we had a whole section where we were talking about that word learners, that the word in the uh, in the Gospels, mathites, that gets translated as disciples, mathites is more properly translated as learners. And we spent a while talking about that. And uh, so I, I, it was, it's providential that it should come up again today. Um, I, I've got two questions for you, George. Uh, one, uh, and you can take this in whichever order uh, you, you feel is most useful. Uh, one, because I, I know that this Reggio Emilia is something you've really devoted a lot of time to uh, and, and a lot of love to. And I, I am not very familiar with the model. I imagine our listeners are not familiar with the model. Uh, I'd love for you to say a brief word about what it is and what from it has been most useful to educating orthodoxy, to, to the orthodox learning experience. Um, and two, 
the second question would be uh, in regard to uh, our parents, the parents, you know, because you point out rightly that usually there's a gap in learning. Uh, they don't magically become scholars in something they haven't studied before the child is born. So how do they go, how do they go about remedying that to even start? Because what I have seen in practical pastoral experience is they know they should do something, but it's something they've never done. And the task seems so overwhelmingly large that very little happens. Um, so you wouldn't have a hard time convincing them that they should do something. It's just, they don't know where to start because there's so much and, and that's a, that's legitimate. So how would you, so what can you say to those two points? Those are great questions. So, um, Reggio is something that's really uh, dear to my heart. Um, it's, it's the name of a, of a town in Italy, uh, between Bologna and Milan in Northern Italy. Um, Reggio is the, we call it the Reggio Emilia approach. They call it that as well. Um, there are schools in the United States and other countries as well that um, call themselves Reggio inspired because unlike Montessori, there's, there's no um, organization that, that certifies you as Reggio. So Reggio has said, the people in Reggio have said, you can say that you're inspired by us, but you have to make the education fit your context. We'll teach you what we do here in Italy. But you have to make it fit your own context. And uh, in Italy, it's, it's the public option for children zero to six years old, because after World War II, when they were rebuilding out of the rubble um, in Italy, the, the, the families in, in Reggio Emilia wanted something for their, uh, for their kids before the public system started at six years old. And that's what grew out of this um, idea over now several decades, many decades. And it's the things that stand out for me. The, the reason I got excited about it, and I mean, so much so that I visited twice to study with their educators, um, is as a high school teacher, science teacher, I was looking for ways for inspiration to help us um, teach our kids to be inquisitive. Because in, in science practice, scientists investigate. In science classes, investigation tends to be a little bit on the short end of, of what we invest our time in. So we, we tend not to teach the kids how to ask questions and then develop investigations after those questions, we, we do a lot of facts. And in Reggio, the thing that really um, stood out to me was, you know, three, four and five year olds, you know, four, five and six year olds were doing investigations. They were out in nature. They were bringing in samples. They were looking at them under microscopes. They were documenting them, taking pictures of them, playing with them in Photoshop. I mean, they were asking questions and documenting and communicating. And I thought to myself, wow, these four, five and six year olds are doing what we want 14, 15 and 16 year olds to do. And so I just, I got connected with their people. I'm, there's a, a really strong network of Reggio uh, inspired educators in the Boston area. And I just, I, I continue to be involved with them uh, because of the, the value that I've gotten from that approach. The other question that you asked, so I, I guess in terms of, of useful to an Orthodox learning experience, um, is this that investigation? Um, the Metropolitan Athanasios of Lemesu, Cyprus um, has a lot of recordings out. Um, the ones that, that I've been listening to are the tapes that he, he made speaking to the university students at the University of Cyprus in the, in the 1990s. And you know, he talks about, he tells the university students, ask questions, challenge what we tell you, because if you just take it at face value, you're not really engaging with it. And so 
through our Orthodox experience and not just our knowledge of the faith, but our living of the faith, um, we do that. We, we, we should be, I, I believe at least that we should be um, asking those questions, investigating it, making it our own, because ultimately we are responsible for our um, path toward salvation and what we're doing um, to be ready for the, for the kingdom of heaven. Um, and that's hard though, for a lot of teachers having students ask, why are we doing this? is a tough question. And so from the educator's side, it's, it's helpful to, to be open to those questions and to welcome those questions because that also helps build that relationship of trust with the, with the students because then they feel like, okay, I don't know what this is. I don't know why I'm doing this. Why are we coming to church in the morning, for example? Why are we doing this? Why do they do this during the service? Um, if they don't have a place to ask those questions or worse, if they ask them and people say, hey, don't ask questions. We don't ask questions. We just do it. Um, then we're going to turn them away. So that, that's you know, how Reggio fits into that. Um, and then you asked about the parents and you know, how do they go, if I'm understanding the question right, how do, how do they go about filling the gaps and remedying what they don't know um, and just you know, finding a starting point? And I think I would echo... Um, you know, what so many of, of the fathers and mothers of the church have told us, you start praying, you know, pray about it because um, it's a starting point. Again, it's not, you don't need a degree to do this. A lot of our saints didn't finish a university. Um, they lived the faith. And so um, starting with, with prayer, I think is, is an important starting point whether they can go to their their parish priest or if they have a spiritual father or somebody that, that can guide them like i said at the beginning of, of having a coach who can help you learn um, to ask those questions too hey we just hit the midway point and we want to remind everybody that you can find us on facebook and instagram at on the battlefield podcast check us out there like us follow us and make suggestions if you like uh, we've said this before, and it's really important to us that we want to make this a conversation and involve you in the process. Uh, so please, again, check us out at Facebook and Instagram at On the Battlefield Podcast and on Anchor FM at On the Battlefield, where you can find a catalog of all the previous podcasts. George, in listening to your last response, uh, I was reminded of, uh, there, there's a guy in Japan who, who is in the tuna business. And he, he said that when he got into the tuna business, he wanted to learn about tuna because if he was going to do it, if he was going to learn, he didn't need to go to school. He was interested in educating himself. He became the most educated. He became the best because he had desire to know about the tuna. And if he had just been content to make a little bit of money, he would still be just out on the docks somewhere. And I, and I, and I recognize an analogy in that. It's that if we want to be educators or if we want to be learners, there has to be an impetus from within us that we have to want it on some level. Um, and I think you addressed that already to a certain degree. It's like if we realize that we are educators and if we realize that we are learners and that we have learners with us, that just the small act of praying can, can light that fire. Um, 
but but for those of us who who might be more uh, pessimistic by nature or who who really feel like we just do not know enough or even know where to look where would you suggest that those people go because a lot of those people are afraid to ask the priest because if i'm 40 years old and i've got little kids and i know that i don't know anything and that i should know a lot more than i do i might not go to the priest so what sort of resources are available to them or what sort of things would you tell them as a lay person to encourage them moving forward? I, I was just say one of the biggest pastoral frustrations priests across the board have. Everyone says they don't know stuff and the quickest way to hear the sound of like silence, awkward silence and crickets in the room is to ask who has questions, what do you want to know? No one raises their hand. It's the worst. And that, and that happens. That happens. You know, again, it comes down to, you know, how, what relationship do they have with you? What trust is there between you being whoever the presenter is, um, between the audience and the presenter? Because, you know, if it, it's, it's hard to put yourself out there in front of other people. Um, it's, and it's something now I'm, I'm, I'm working in, in the remote learning environment uh, with a high school and, and it's the whole Zoom model um i love it for for some reasons and and there are other reasons that you know it, there's that challenge of trying to figure out how do we make this work how do we get people to talk to each other when they can just turn off their mic and turn off their their camera um but to, to go back to the question about where do you go for information first i would say um don't beat yourself up whatever you know you know and just value that um you're not going to know everything and that's okay um, this is learning is, is a lifelong process um, and there's just so much out to learn that you're not going to get there and know everything about everything and, and that's okay and it's good to just acknowledge that's okay because the thing that um, that when someone is learning when 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 the educator can put themselves in the shoes of the learner they'll understand the challenges that the learner is going through like if you teach a subject in a school for example and you've taught that subject year after year and you've got your handouts and whatever and it, it just doesn't change it's easy to get it's easy to forget especially as as your as your students are changing it's easy to forget what it was like to learn this for the first time and what the challenges that the people that you're engaging with have and so what i try to do and what i try to coach teachers on is put yourself in the position of a learner by changing what you're learning so I'm a fan of, of a project-based approach where um, the students are doing some sort of a project because I don't know the outcome. And if they pick, pick the topic, I, there's, there's not an answer key where I am the almighty holder of the answer and you need to guess what's in my head. That's some, that dynamic sometimes happens. Instead, it's, I don't know the answer either. Let's figure it out together. And that helps build that trust between the learner and the educator. So for someone looking for the answers, just being open and honest about, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm trying to figure it out too, is really, really valuable. Um, and, I, and I would heavily encourage that as opposed to making up some answer just because you don't want to sound like you don't know and then making up a wrong answer. Some, some you know, that, that, I, I do not encourage that at all. In fact, I discourage that. Um, but, you know, where can you go, right? There, it depends on where you live, right? It might be the internet. It might be recordings. I'm a fan of 
I'm a fan of sources that come out of a monastic tradition. So um, I mentioned earlier Metropolitan Athanasius of Lemesu. When I'm, the tapes that I'm listening to, he was still Father Athanasius. He wasn't a Metropolitan yet. He was a student of St. Paisios. And so I, I, I like seeking them out for, for learning because they're living it every day. They're, they're fighting that battle every day. So in my head, they exemplify the toughest role you can have in this space. And I like learning from the best. Um, and, you know, they, I had a conversation with uh, Sister Magdalene of the um, Stavropedic Monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, England. And I asked her, uh, she came to visit the school that I, was, that I was leading. And I asked her, I said, you know, in an Orthodox school, what, 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 what makes a school Orthodox? Because we have a lot of parochial schools that subscribe to different um, educational models or curricula. But the thing I'm, I'm searching for is, what is the essence of an Orthodox school? When you walk into a school and you know that it's Orthodox, what is it about that school? And you know, it, it's not an easy question. And the, the first thing that she told me, which has stuck with me is that um, you know, the goal of the educator isn't to, um, how'd she put it? The goal of the educator is to prepare the child for the world, not to protect, not to protect them from it. And so sometimes there's a, there's a discussion about types of schools, private, parochial, public, um, and we're gonna put our kids in a, public, in a parochial school to protect them from the public school. And I just, I don't think that's a, that's a healthy approach. Um, in any event, if, if you're running a parochial school, I'm, I'm a big fan of that concept of, we're here to prepare the kids, not to protect the kids. And using the battlefield analogy, you, know, you do immense training to be prepared for the fight. You don't hide from it. You said one thing that uh, I, I'm very curious about, and that is you, you pointed out, actually you both pointed out very well, the primacy of desire, the, the having a love for the subject matter, you know, father with his, uh, you know, the, this gentleman in Japan who could have just been a run of the mill tuna catcher and made money, but he made out of desire, he made himself the best educated about it, George, you've You've done a great job of, uh, of pointing out that a, a love of learning, how do, how can we spark that missing link? I think that's really the, uh, the boogeyman, you know, it's just like, if the kids don't already carry, people kind of have the desire. They've paid money to show up to learn this thing. The desire is there. Uh, in a Sunday school scenario, the kids got dropped off. So how do we spark a desire where you, it, you might not be able to take that for granted? Yeah, and, and that happens even in public schools. You know, it's, it's, it's the law to attend school. So kids are there because it's the law, regardless of what type of school, public, charter, private that they choose. Um, I mean, and I would flip that question a little bit and, and phrase it as, how do you help people love God? Um, and that takes a lot of breaking down, right? What does love God even mean? I mean, it's... Jesus, church, and love are three of the, the, the most common um, Sunday school type questions that, that I hear. You know, if you sit in a, in a you know, either in a, in a lecture or a Sunday school class or even in a homily, 
if a question is asked, the test I usually do is, can I answer with Jesus, church, or love and, and be right? And a lot of our kids know that trick and they guess and they get it right. And, but they're not really learning about the faith. Um, you know, I've thought a lot about, it, and I'm still learning what it means to love God because it's, it's not that easy. I, I was struck by an example I heard over the summer. Um, again, coming back to, to Metropolitan Nathanasius, because he's talking to uh, a university audience, 20-somethings, and addressing sort of everyday kinds of, of issues in these, in these talks. And somebody had told him that um, you know, she was really upset about her boyfriend leaving. And the conversation kind of steered towards him asking her, do you love God? Do you think about God every minute of the day as much as you thought about your ex-boyfriend? And that was profound because when I think about, you know, I might say, I love God, but do I think about him as much as I think about my wife or my kids every day, during the day? You know, that's, the, that's, a, that's a question that I, I feel like is a really useful test to just have someone check on themselves of how much am I engaged with that love? Um, and what does it mean? You know, when we talk about a lot of what I've, I've heard and, and learned growing up as, as lessons in the faith were things like, if you do this, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you go to church, if you fast, if you pray, you will go to heaven. Um, and the thing that I've learned more recently is that that's, that's a more of a transactional approach. And love isn't transactional. So if I think about with my wife, you know, or any of my relatives or anybody that I care about and, and love, I'm not expecting something back from them. If I do it, I do it because I love them, not because they're going to give me something back. I don't do something for God because I want him to give me heaven. Right? I do it because I love him. If heaven happens, heaven happens. But that, that's, that's sort of a nuance, a subtlety um, that was pro pretty profound for me when I, when I learned about that. So how do you instill that? I, I think you just have to you know, think about how do you instill love in, in anyone? Because first we have to, well, first we have to love ourselves. We're not going to do much good loving other people if we don't love ourselves. We're not going to do much good loving God if we don't love ourselves. So we have to love ourselves. And then, you know, as we love God, we can love other people and, and, and develop empathy. Um, but if the question is more along the lines of like, I have a 14-year-old who doesn't want to come to church, doesn't want to go to Sunday school, doesn't want to engage with the youth programs, I would dig into that. Why not? You know, is, is there something about the relationships? Maybe they're, they're at a parish where every child is at a different school and so nobody hangs out with anybody anyway. So they see each other for 30 minutes a week on a Sunday. You know, yeah, maybe that's not as enticing for them to engage with each other. That doesn't mean they don't love the church yet. So, but again, it just comes to, I think, trying to understand. It's, it's a hard question. I mean, how do you, how do you love someone or how do you get somebody to love someone? They have to have experience with that someone. They have to see from you, for example, that you love and how you love the faith and God and the people in the community. You know, do you talk about them in a positive way after a parish council meeting? You know, or are you upset that you know, nobody listens, nobody works or whatever the complaint might be? They, they pick up on that. So it starts with us and them seeing that, wow, they love it. I'll try it out too. 
that, that's that's thank you george that was really uh, insightful that i'm disappointed i'm reminded you, of, though yeah. i'm super disappointed with you though george i was hoping for a silver bullet <laughs> Uh, that's not true. I wasn't because there's no silver. There's no silver <laughs> bullet. Otherwise, we would already have it and shot that out of the gun. But but well, it's so individual. My, it's my, so unique. It's it's hard to deal with. You know, it's it's hard to want to step out onto the battlefield and and engage the struggle to to move forward and to grow and to en endure the unknowing of of life's reality. I guess. Well, and, and my ask for any, anyone in a leadership position to do something about the education of, of our faithful, to, to take to heart the, the, the model that you have in this podcast of the battlefield, because a lot of our educator core in the church uh, is volunteer. And a lot of what I've seen is, is not a whole lot of training for those volunteers. And so if you think about the military, how successful is your military going to be if you have a, a, a volunteer corps who doesn't have a lot of training in uh, the strategies, the tools, the weapons, whatever you need to do, um, it, it's similar in education. It's, it's very hard. It takes a lot of training. I've been doing this for 20 years, and I still feel like I'm figuring this out. Um, and I would encourage anyone in a leadership role to, to invest in that, in that learning, in that, in that training and development. I was going to say that, it, you know, I, I agree very much with George's assessment on, on love. And I'm reminded of something that uh, one of the saints pointed out to, uh, to someone who, who came to them talking about love in their relationship. And that was just that, uh, you know, when you met your spouse, you didn't love them. You know, when you met them, you didn't love them, right? You, you did very specific things that eventually turned into love. Marital love breaks down because you do the things that break down love. How can we encourage the right type of seeking or seeking in a like we're shutting them down unless they do it a certain way? Yeah, and, and I would say a lot of that's going to come down to... Um, the, the person and what their motivation is, which I might not know. You know, someone asking tough questions might be asking tough questions because that's how they think. They might be asking tough questions because they're just trying to push my buttons and test me and see if I'm someone who they can learn to trust. So I might not know their motivation. So I, I would just welcome the questions openly. I mean, and there are a couple of ways to do that. So one of the ways that I developed years ago at a, at a summer camp was, um, I had three by five, these little three by five steno pads, like little journalist notepads, I think they call them at, at, the, at the office supply store and, and little golf pencils that you could stick into the spiral. And I just, I, I gave them to the kids and when they went into services, they could just write down any questions. And I would encourage them, look around, read the service book, notice stuff and, and anything you notice that you just wanna know about, why does this smell like this? Why does it look like this? Why does it sound like this? Why do we say this? Whatever it might be. Why is that hanging over there? Um, write it down. And we had our Orthodox life session every evening at our cabin. And whatever questions I could answer, I answered. Whatever questions I couldn't answer, I took them to someone um, higher than me who, who might know better and would get those answers back to the kids uh, if, if, if we could answer it. Um, and so that was one tool in terms of the steno pad, which I, I still continue to use. Now I've 
got made it more sophisticated with, you know, printing questions on the mailing labels and then sticking the mailing label on the top sheet, you know, the first blank sheet, and then handing them out um, with, with different prompts, you know, depending on the, the age level of, of, the, of the person, um, to encourage that kind of curiosity. Because curiosity helps open that door when you're curious about your spouse, if you mentioned earlier. Like that's, that's, what, that's what helps open up that pathway to love. Um, and if they're asking tough questions, don't be sarcastic. Don't knock them. Just take the questions because there might be some legitimate, serious um, motivation behind it um, that opens up, that, that gets discovered from it. George, uh, we really, really appreciate the time that you gave us today. Um, we're, we're already past time. Typically, we, we try to keep the podcast about 30 minutes, but it was worth listening to. And I am most grateful that you, you inspired me to try to inspire curiosity. Uh, you inspired me to en engage people in the process of becoming curious and that in, in the process of, of that relationship that, that we build as educators and learners, that curio curiosity and the desire to know more and to deepen our relationship with the Lord is really a key principle in the process. And I, I thank you for that. I appreciate you for having invoked that in me. Well, thank you for inviting me today. Uh, Father Michael, please uh, close us with prayer. Uh, it would be greatly appreciated. I do want to. I do want to also say thank you to George and, of course, my co-host, Father Joseph. This was a, a, an excellent podcast, and I think I want to. Even though I was part of it, I think I'm going to listen to this one several times myself because there's a, a lot of. It gave us a lot of great things to. Uh, to study and think about. Let us pray to the Lord, Lord of mercy. Christ our God, enlighten the eyes of our mind that we may comprehend the message of your gospel, putting down all bodily desires, pursue a spiritual way of life, both thinking and doing those things which are pleasing to you. For you are the light of our souls and bodies, and you may ascribe glory to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. And thank you for joining us on the battlefield. May the Lord keep you strong in his faith until we meet again. Amen. See you in two weeks. Thank you.